Hey, this is Jim Duncan with Nest Realty. This week on Sweat the Details, Jessica Louts, the Deputy Chief Economist and VP of Research at the NAR, joined us. She's our first three-time guest, and we were super excited to have her. We always look forward to this conversation because it's always a great one. We talked about how many homes are needed in America, repurposing office buildings and schools, schools, American birth rate trends, financial security and insecurity, women in the workforce, elder and childcare, 2024 projections, cash offers, family gifts, and affordable housing resources. This was a great conversation. We hope you enjoy it. Well, thanks for making the time, Jessica. This is this is Jim. Uh, Keith and Jonathan are here. Um, thanks for making time. This is going to be really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to. So it's you know mid September 2023. What? How are you feeling about the market this year, based on what the expectations were um, going into 2023, and then where we are about to enter fourth quarter of uh, 2023? You know, I think it's a little more sluggish than we thought it would be. Um, but I have to say, in comparison to last year, yes, sales activity is down, but it's probably a much healthier market for buyers who are trying to enter in uh, because they actually have an opportunity to see a home and actually uh, view that home before placing a bid. Um, that being said, it's a hard year for realtors out there, for for agents and for brokers. This is a very difficult time because we don't have enough inventory right now. And if we had more inventory, we would clearly have more sales because there is a lot of demand, regardless of higher rates sitting on the sideline. What would you say is that, you know, I know, I know there's a lot of factors behind it, um, but from your perspective, what do you think the number one reason the inventory is not there is? I think there's two main reasons, uh, underbuilding for a decade, but also the lock-in effect of higher interest rates. Um, those two factors absolutely go hand in hand uh, because people are not going to move if they know that they're going to be paying more for a similar size home. Um, they may have to move because they recently got divorced or they recently got married or they have a new job, um, but they likely are going to be very reticent to do so. Um the underbuilding has been a substantial issue, and we do know that there has been more building in the last year. Housing starts are certainly up. New home sales are certainly up. Um, but we need a lot more of it over an extended period of time to really meet the needs of the population right now. So, Jessica, you you were kind enough to come speak to the Nest offices back in December of last year. And and at that you at that time, you had said our building shortage was at about six and a half million homes. Where are we now? I mean, is that are we closer to to parity or are we still at that six and a half million or have we even increased what that shortage is? So we're still about there. What we need is we need building for about three to four years at the pace that it has been going in the last six months to nine months. So we really do need a ramp up in building that's going to be continual. Um, I think that one of the ways we could easier uh, do this easier is not. Uh, brand new housing starts that are coming into the marketplace, but looking at re adaptive reuse. So thinking about hotels, motels, vacant malls, um, vacant schools uh, that can all be adapted. And obviously office places are being talked about quite a bit now too, uh, but looking at those types of units, bringing them into the market. Vacant schools is fascinating. And it, it sort of ties into a thought that I, I, we shared by email is, one, I'd never, I've heard about office office buildings and, and things like that, had never even considered vacant schools. But the, so one, is that happening? Is that, where's that being considered? And second is, 
you know, are we seeing a decline in the birth rate in the U.S.? And is that something you see continuing? And if so, what are the short and long-term effects of that from a real estate, real estate perspective? Yeah, lots of questions there. So yes, yes, we are seeing uh, vacant schools actually uh, being considered and and moving into the residential space. In fact, I'm from a very small town in Washington State, and uh, we had a brand new school that I went to, but the older school actually was developed and made into residential uh, senior housing, actually, um, because classrooms uh, are about the right size, and uh, they often have bathrooms, especially in the historic old schools. Uh, so those solid buildings can can really be adapted into that residential space. Um, as far as birth rates go, yes, they're, they continue to be down. Um, there has been some movement upwards in that trend, uh, especially for women in their 30s um, in the most recent years of data. But I have to say that overall, the trajectory has been down. And I don't know, I, I don't forecast that, and I, I wouldn't want to um, forecast what's going to happen with birth rates. Um, you know, overall, I'm not sure what's going to happen. Certainly, when people feel more financially secure, they are more likely to have children. Um, we, we know that that is the case. Um, and perhaps people are feeling more financially settled. We're coming out of COVID, feeling less anxiety. It is possible. Um, but, you know, I, I, that's not something I forecast. So I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but you, but you are a demographer, and that is your background. Have we? It, it, did COVID have a baby bust effect that was significant, or that you'll that you think you'll look at in five years and think was significant? Yeah, I think we're already looking at it right now. I think everyone going into the pandemic thought there could be a baby boom because we also thought that this would be a two week incident and we would all be home for a couple of weeks and uh, we would enjoy ourselves and make some bread, right? Um, and maybe put something else in the oven. Um, but now what we have seen, looking <laughs> looking back at that, uh, what we have seen has happened is that actually, no, there was a lot of anxiety, a lot of insecurity. Uh, COVID happened for a longer period of time than anyone thought. And there was a lot of financial insecurity. And with financial insecurity means that people are much more reticent to bring a new child into a family. Um, we also know that women left the workforce at rates that we have not seen since the 1980s. So as they left the workforce, they were they were in caregiving responsibilities for elder care, for child care. Um, and that means people are not going to have children in that scenario. They, they were very tired at the end of the day, and that just was not going to happen. Uh, so we did see a baby bust. So let, let's actually, if, if we can, let's focus on that labor participation rate, because I've seen those charts that have been you know, I've seen you talk about, I've seen Lauren Chun and others discuss it for a while now, but I haven't heard, what's the long-term thought on that? Is that something that, do we believe that that participation rate's going to be going back up or is this a shift of nuclear family? Is this a shift of, of kind of prioritization within our economy? What is your thought on that? So it, it, it has rebounded. The most recent data actually shows that women are back in the workforce um, and that men uh, quickly rebounded, actually coming out of COVID. So we actually are back at the labor participation rate um, that we had seen pre-COVID and actually a little above that, which is very encouraging um, to see that go back up. Uh, people are feeling more confident in the workforce. Uh, perhaps they uh, reimagined and moved uh, to find support for childcare from friends and family. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that's one of the scenarios that could be happening as well. A lot of people relocated during the pandemic in the last few years just to be close to friends and family. And I think that means, hey, 
Grand Pirates down the street. Can you watch kiddo? Uh, Cause I need to head to the office. I didn't, I, I mean, I, I see that on a, you know, on, from a personal level, you know, having, having grandkids nearby is a, a hugely huge benefit for us as grandparents, but also clearly for my, my daughter and her husband, it's great to have us close by. And I, I, that's something that I see more and more of my clients are articulating as a reason to move. Right. I've been yes. really genuinely curious as to what percentage of buyers are expressing that as one of like that. It may not be the top, like the top reason they move, but it's got to be one, one, two or three. It's in that grouping. It sure is. And yeah. And honestly, for sellers, it is the number one reason to sell a home is to be close to friends and family. The number one reason for sellers to relocate. Um, it's not it's slightly jobs. shocking. Not jobs. No jobs moved down in the list actually. And that's because of hybrid work, remote work. Yeah. Jobs moved down. Number that- one reason to sell. Is that also a factor, the fact that the baby boomers are such a large part of the population and where they are right now in their retirement plan? Yes. Yes, absolutely. So in the next two years, every single boomer is going to be over the age of 60, and they are the number one demographic who is making housing trades right now. So they are moving close to the grandbaby. And they're, they're moving long distances too. For the typical repeat buyer, they're moving 90 miles, but a quarter of buyers right now, a quarter of buyers are moving 470 miles. So, or more. Yeah. Jessica, I don't know if you can see us or not. But, <laughs> I can. Okay. But our, our faces are agape right now with these numbers you're throwing at us because 470 miles is a phenomenal. Is that, how is that, how Listen, is that I changed? Want to take a, I want to look at it a different way, Jim. I'm thinking about the fact that that means that the average child has moved more than 470 miles from their hometown. Mm-hmm. That that's what's causing the parents to relocate. I mean, think about it. It used to be that people stayed relatively close to home. They would go to a college within state. They'd work within state. They might, you know, move a couple hundred miles to a couple of hours. But a 500 mile shift is pretty significant. And to then be a parent moving 470 miles, 25 percent is huge. Yeah, it, it's really significant. And I think the other thing is that we have to reflect on too is. That home buyer may have a friend or family there, but they don't know that area at all. And that's going to upend what that means to be a real estate agent working with that buyer because it it puts a lot of onus on that agent that they need to show them that area. Uh, they need to show them the best coffee shop. Like not to be flippant, but truly they don't know that area. They may have vacationed there. They may have visited right. there, but they don't know that neighborhood. Um, no, Jessica. So I, yeah. That, that's that is something sorry to interrupt but that is one that almost every single one of my buyers who come into the charlottesville virginia area somewhat cold they mm-hmm. express to me in one way or the other say you know, we're reaching out to you because you're the only person we know mm-hmm. you know yeah. and it, it's a it's a massive you know responsibility on the agent's perspective to to be the person who knows that stuff and who's who's not Googling Yelp, is that a thing? But <laughs> but not looking on Yelp for the best coffee shop. It's where they are intimately part of the community. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the other thing I would say, too, is I have cut that data. And I think the the moving long distances often make people a little wary. Like, are they going to use an agent? How are they going to find their agent? They're more likely to find them online. So that's that shouldn't be a surprise because they don't necessarily have uh, a strong connection there. Right. That they would just ask their neighbor, who did you use um, when you sold your home? So they they are looking online. So making sure that those online listings and everything is is up to date because they're going to find you there. Interesting. I, I want to um, 
shift gears a little bit, but but not really for this talking about about baby boomers. I mean, I think one of the challenges that that I've been reading about some things that you've that you've put out there is that millennials are losing out to baby boomers, and it's been a challenge mm-hmm. for first time home buyers. And there's not as many first time home buyers because these baby boomers have accumulated assets over the over the years, and being in a very competitive market, you know, they're more likely to to win out over millennials. Do you do you see this? trend continuing for a for a period where where millennials are essentially you know continuing to be second and third place on these trend on these purchase contracts well i i think unfortunately what we're going to see for for the next few years at least as boomers move solidly into retirement and think about their retirement property is that we're going to see this competition in the marketplace. I don't think this is going away overnight. Um, the other problems that we're seeing too for first-time home buyers are not going away either. So when we think about um, the expenses of childcare, when we think about the expenses of student loan debt coming back and, and people having those payments again, um, that's not going away. Uh, we also know that, yes, rents have been easing. We, they have been coming down from those bidding wars over rental units, which is just mind-blowing to me every time I hear about it. Um, that doesn't seem to be happening anymore, but we know that rent is expensive. So it's hard to save for a down payment, especially in this higher rate environment, home prices going back up. So all of those problems are still there at the same time that the wealth accumulation for homeowners is still happening. And so baby boomers are going to be the winners in that scenario. So here, I'm going to try and put a positive spin on that. From a societal perspective, could that lead to more cohabitation of families and more opportunity for renovation in addition to keep the the kids at home with their kids, with with the parents? And, you know, other, you know, other cultures around the world, they have that cohabitation, something that that bonds, bonds the society a little bit stronger. Do you think that that might be something we see? Yes, necessity. But also, people get acclimated to that, where it becomes, you know, one part of society, and two, from a housing demand perspective, going to create more of a demand for that multi generational housing that will that will be, you know, a great a greater part of it. Totally, absolutely, and we already see it's fourteen percent of all buyers are purchasing a multi generational home, and that's that's high. That is uh, the highest that we really have seen. When you say a multi-generational generational home, are you referring to the structure being created for that purpose, or you mean that they anticipate that in the initial move-in that there will be multi-generations? We ask the buyer, how do you plan it? Who's going to live in this house? And they report to us, it's okay. going to be used as a multi-generational home. So one where grandparents could live there, or mm-hmm. that a, a young them. adult has boomeranged yeah. back. Any scenario that you can think of, they're saying, yep, that's how we're going to live in this home. And a lot of it is for cost savings. It is because you can have multiple incomes uh, contributing financially to that household. Uh, Some of it's to spend more time with each other. Some of it's for care, for elder care and for child care, moving back and forth on that. um, Quite important to have that support system right now. That's, you know, I mean, I I think one of the points you touched on is having multiple incomes to help pay for a house. Clearly we're in a spot right now where housing is not as affordable as it was. And I, I think you posted something just recently um, that this time last year rates were six. Now they're mm-hmm. over seven. Um, and then the NAR has a housing affordability indexed, which was uh, 87.8. And just to put that in context, that's the lowest point that it's been since 1986. 
And yeah. so what are the other challenges that you're seeing out there with housing affordability and how, how it's impacting the market? Well, I mean, unfortunately, wages are lagging. And so there people are having a harder time saving for a down payment when we think about this inflationary environment. If you're spending more on all goods, even well, inflation has been coming down, it's just going to be harder to save for that down payment. So I, I went over a lot of those expenses, but just thinking about your day-to-day expenses too, just knowing that your wages don't mean as much as they had um, just a year ago. Um, looking at the rise in rates from six to over 7%, that translates for the typical price of a home at $400,000, about $250 more per month that you're paying for that mortgage. That may not be a make or break for a lot of people, but for some buyers, it absolutely is. And that changes perhaps the location they can purchase in, the condition of the home. And when you move into that home, do you want to be saddled with a ton of remodel? Because that's expensive too. Uh, so just thinking about all of those different scenarios that buyers are encountering today. Yeah, I, uh, I, I coincidentally, Jim and I ran into each other at the grocery store a couple of weeks ago and I was going in to pick up... Um, some bread for for one of my kids and I picked up some gluten-free bread never really paid attention to the price of it it was seven dollars for Oof. a loaf of bread uh so yes our wages aren't aren't worth as much as they were a couple of years ago it's, it is but, I mean I'm just big sigh there that's yeah that's that's brutal um I think any anyone who's doing the household budgeting is is feeling it as we're we're manipulating those numbers and trying to make it work so um, yeah, pretty rough when you go to the grocery store or the coffee shop and you suddenly leave with a $7 item and it's a medium coffee. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and what are the things, Jessica, you're, that you're looking at that are going to shape the, the real estate market economy uh, in the next 18 months? I mean, I think that it's somewhat fun to, to try and project out 5, 10, 15 years, but you know, in a lot of ways, we're looking at 6, 9, 18-month you know, periods. I mean, what are the things that you see impacting our market you know, next year? So I do think we're going to have more new builds. Um, building has certainly been up. And so I do think we're going to have those units come to the market. Um, and that's going to be encouraging. Uh, for anyone who's looking for a property who's that's newer, and those are largely uh, people who have more money. So we're going to say boomers um, in the marketplace or Gen Xers who are in peak earning years. Um, we're going to see them moving into those units and, and that'll be good. The other thing to keep in mind, too, is we're talking about rates and um, the complications in the marketplace. You know, those numbers are really bleak. But to look at the opportunities, we can see that half of older boomers are purchasing a home with all cash. So when they're when they're moving into that transaction, they don't care about rates. Um, a quarter of the market of all homebuyers right now are consistently paying all cash. They don't care. And so I think we have to know that there is an opportunity there as well, even though rates are rough. It's difficult for first-time home buyers. There are buyers who can make this move. Do, do you make a differentiation when you when you look at the cash numbers? Do you look at you know whether it's a suitcase full of cash or if it's <laughs> a HELOC that is or or borrowing against investments so it looks like it's cash and feels like cash to the to the seller, but is it actually you know pockets of cash or is it you know something else? Yeah, that's a good question and one way I get frequently when we look at this data. We're asking the question of, did the buyer finance the home at all? And so I think it is 
really pockets of cash um, when we're asking a question like that, uh, because having those those loans that uh, you're not financing, you can move through in the contract uh, pretending that you're not going to finance the home. I, I don't think that's what we're looking at here, though. I do know that those services are available so that uh, some buyers can actually get a footing and be able to compete in today's housing market um, where we're still seeing three offers for every home that's listed. It's It's still a competitive market. Do you have a sense on, you know, to on that cash aspect of the generational component? What what percentage are you seeing of of you know, first second time home buyers are getting gifts from family or I was going to say we're friends, it'd be some great friends uh, <laughs> uh, from from family members who are who are loaning them or you know, gifting them, you know, 5%, you know, 10%, $5,000, whatever that is? Yeah, so we do track that, um, especially for first-time homebuyers. That's quite popular. Uh, in wedding gifts, you you know you can add those up from friends and say I'm saving for a down payment on a house, and certainly that can be a contributor too. So good friends, but everyone can chip in, right? Um, and we we are seeing that that uh, consistently is about a quarter of the market. What I have to say is this year it went down, and I think it went down because the age of a first-time homebuyer went up to 36, and when you're 36 years old. I think it gets a little uncomfortable to borrow from the make of mom and dad, as opposed to when you're 28 or 33. It's just feels a little more rational to do that and, and to ask mom and dad for a loan or a gift, as opposed to you're nearly 40 years old and you're doing that. That's my guess in, in taking a look at that data. Um, the other thing that we did see happen though, and it went up this year, is really what you were talking about, Jim, about uh, supporting each other and moving in with each other. We did see the share of young adults who moved in first with their friends and family and skipped paying rent before they went to purchase. That share went up. Um, so I think that that's, that could be a way that people are, are saving for a down payment too. That's that's fascinating. And, and are you seeing any trends with these down payments of, of um, what first-time home buyers are putting down clearly like there's the cash buyers that are out there kind of the boomers but in terms of first-time home buyers are you seeing the amount of down payment go up or down that they've been able to put down it is pretty steady so we're seeing it at six to seven percent annually that folks are are using for a down payment uh which indicates to me that they're taking advantage of fha loans va loans low down payment programs talking with their lenders and being pretty savvy about it um, that 20% myth is is really out there. People really think they need 20% down. And certainly you may be in a scenario where you have to pay PMI um, if you don't put 20% down, but you can get into homeownership easier um, and quicker than that 20%. Um, I think that that is a huge gap of knowledge between people who are not active in the buying market versus those who successfully buy. And getting that information out there can be huge to those those consumers. You you posted something recently that talked about programs for first time home buyers, you know, for for grants and things like that. Can you share you know just uh, something about that that'll help us? Again, I, I don't think that we're going to explain to somebody how to get a grant today. But besides talking to their realtor directly, how can we get people to at least spur that conversation or, or spur that question to them? 
Yeah. You know, the website that I always send people to is HUD.gov. That's pretty boring, HUD.gov, um, to send people there. But they have a really good interactive website. And you click what state you're in, you click your local area, you see what programs you could qualify for. You can match up your income. You can see uh, what programs are out there. And that, I think, can be really helpful to folks. And it's really easy to send people to HUD.gov um, and see what they qualify for. That's a simple answer. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everyone's finances are different. And so just sending them there and and seeing what they, they could qualify for, I think, could be helpful. So Jessica, well, we're talking about what you can qualify for. I, I do want to ask one question from from you, and and this may not be a demography question, but you know the debt to income levels that are acceptable by FHA and by conventional lenders have gone up significantly from the olden day twenty eight thirty six kind of ratios of of percentage of your total household income going towards housing. What are your thoughts on that? In in terms of have we gone too far? Are people starting to put their own kind of limitations to what they're willing to say they can afford? Or how is that? how does that look from your perspective? That's a really good question. So I, I know that there is some more flexibility now than there, there had been in the past. What I'll say is that lending is still really tight. It's still hard to qualify for a mortgage. So if you feel like you feel comfortable doing that and making those payments, you're still going to have to undergo the scrutiny of your credit score. Um, you're still going to have to have money in reserves. You're still going to have to be able to move through on that transaction and be able to prove your income, where if we look at this during the boom and the bust, you didn't have to do any of those things. Right. Um, so I, I think that even though there ha that has changed, um, that we still know that lending's really quite tight for home buyers today. And so they're probably still in a scenario where they can evaluate, do they feel comfortable making that payment? but also that lender is going to make sure that they can make that payment too. And that's why we really don't see distressed sales in this marketplace. Uh, we don't see folks defaulting because the lending standards are very tight. Okay. Yeah, that's great. Well, Jessica, we know that, um, that you're busy, uh, but we did just want to ask one, one final question, you know, as, as brokers and, and realtors, it's admittedly a little bit of a stressful time right now. And we're having lots of conversations with our agents um, do you have any, you know, kind of any rosy positive news to kind of end us <laughs> out on as we look forward the next 12 to 18 months of, of, uh, something for our agents and, and, and realtors across the country to, to, to be excited about? Yeah, I know it's, it's not easy right now to be an agent, to be a broker out there right now, home sales are down. And so this is a really tough time for folks out there, uh, making a living in this. Um, what I would say is that I do think that there's better pictures ahead. I really do. I think that we are going to see interest rates ticking down as we go into 2024. That's going to bring more buyers into the market. I do think that we're seeing home building is going up. That's going to be encouraging too, um, as we absolutely need more inventory right now. Uh, the job market looks pretty solid. So that's an encouraging sign. If people have earnings, if they feel good about their wages, they're going to move forward and make that home purchase and make the biggest financial decision in their life. They're not going to do it if the job market looks, looks rough, but right now it looks pretty good. Um, so I think that there are big picture encouraging signs that we're seeing right now. We just have to get these rates down and we have to bring more units into the market. Yeah, that's great. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed. These rates start to 
ticked down a little bit. Um, we've been holding our breath and uh, it hasn't happened yet, but uh, it's, it's great to hear experts like you continue to encourage us and, and tell us that uh, there's some positive vibes on the horizon. So um, thank you so much again for taking time with us. We, we really do appreciate it and we appreciate all the insight that you have uh, given us over the past couple of years. Yeah, absolutely. It's great. Always great to talk to y'all. So thank you. Thanks, Jessica. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you. We just finished with, Je- with Jessica Louts from NAR. Um, I love her, man. She is she is the best guest. She's just she always brings up things that we are not remotely thinking about beforehand. What was uh, that? I, I, go ahead, Jim. What was that? The the fourteen percent. What what it just? I wrote down fourteen percent. I need to look at my notes. Why? What was that fourteen percent she was referencing? Do you remember, Dave? Uh, the 14% were buying multi-generational homes. 14% of buyers are buying multi-generational homes. I mean, anecdotally, I see that a lot in my, through my client lens, but that seems like a massive number of, of Americans buying homes to be either with grandkids or grandparents or, or whatever. And that's, that's striking. For me, it's, for me, it's the 470 mile move. Like that's, that is a tremendous distance as a retiree to pick up and just go somewhere to be close to the grandkids. And, you know, one of the things that we didn't get into during our discussion, but I would love to just kind of really think more about it is, is this because parents are not wanting to be alone in the hometown or is it because the kids need help with the grandchildren? And is it people really moving because it's just not affordable to have people in daycare anymore? Is it, what's driving that, that, decision to be closer to your kids yes i mean i think yeah, it's all well, i know and and that's but i'd love to hear kind of if if the question is now the number one reason to sell a home is to be close closer to friends and family instead of jobs instead of children instead of, i mean that's that's a huge well, huge I, shift i saw a report last week that said that uh with the uh, the loss of federal funding seventy thousand child cares are likely to close in the very near future and average childcare in the Charlottesville area is, you know, for per kid, it's like fifteen hundred dollars a kid if you just have the one, and which is less. Jim, I know you. I know you're always on Reddit, and I was on Reddit yes. last week, and there was in the Charlottesville Reddit, there was somebody who wrote and said, "Oh, we put in our our we signed up for the waiting list for a for a daycare." Took four and a half months. We had our baby two and a half months into um, maternity leave. It's time to talk about the enrollment we went in to sign and we had never understood the actual cost of childcare until that moment and my wife is going to stay at home i think that was the outcome it was like he's like how in the world can you afford to do this and i i think about our you know our younger staff people in daycare and and child and you know he's looking for at home uh, nannies share, you know, nanny shares. And it's like, this is, it's incredibly expensive. Well, my, I mean, my daughter's at our house right now with the, with the grandkids and my, and my wife, I mean, she's on maternity leave, but that's something that will continue when she goes back. Yeah. And that, that's, you know, it's, it's a reason, it's a reason that they came back home. Uh, but usually it's the parents as, as she's talking about, the parents are the ones leaving. I have, I have a good friend who's likely going to be moving, you know, in the near future because kids are going to have kids. And I think that that's the way it typically works is that the grandparents will move to be closer to the kids and they'll follow them around the country. But that was that that those Such are two striking numbers, two just you know, 
yeah. shocking numbers. Well, as we've talked about, and it, things are just so expensive now. And going back to the housing affordability index from NAR, that it's at its lowest point since 1986. Um, and just to kind of infuse a little bit of fun into this, so we don't talk all about the the economy. 1986. Anybody have a guess of what the number one song on the uh, on the top 40 chart was in 19 July of 1986? <laughs> I have no idea. Invisible Touch by Genesis. That was Sledge a great Hammer. song. Sledgehammer by Peter Gabriel. Number Which two. Which is a great song. <laughs> I wait to the danger zone, Kenny Loggins. <laughs> we're, we're dating. Not his greatest song. <laughs> oh, come on now. Top Gun's one of the best yeah. movies of all time. What was? Top Gun. Top Gun, yeah. <laughs> so that's a long time ago, right? We're, we're dating ourselves here, but 1986, I mean, that's so, yeah, I mean, it, it will, you know, hopefully we get to the point where rates drop a little bit. I don't think that prices are going to drop a little bit. We didn't really get too much into pricing. Um, with Jessica, but, uh, but, you know, I mean, I think the first thing for, for, I guess there's a couple things that go into affordability, it's wages and, uh, and interest rates. And hopefully those are both kind of move in positive directions. Um, so affordability becomes better that, I mean, you know, the the first time home buyers and millennials losing out over and over to baby boomers, it's a, it's a concern because we need and want, um, new new home new homeowners in this country that that stimulates the economy and and uh sets people up for long-term you know long-term wealth and, and increasing their net worth yeah and i think so, it also speaks to the need for new housing stock that is going to speak to to today's market both the 14 percent of people you know gen, generational living but also smaller houses. i mean i saw a stat recently that said that over the last 18 months the housing size in the u.s has started to drop I mean, not by 600 square feet, but 50 feet. Or 120. 120? Like 120. Yeah. yeah. You know, so it's... it's. Think, go ahead. I would say, I think part of that is cost, right? It's expensive to build right now. And and part of it is also the evolution of um, how people use homes. And, and, and what the article said with that was that living rooms are going away and bathtubs, right? Those are kind of the two low-hanging fruit areas, aspects of a home that people are dropping right? Uh, and saving them a little bit of space. I mean, you think about a bathtub being what, like a probably six feet by four feet-ish, yeah. you know, somewhere around there. That's 25 square feet right there. Living rooms are big. Uh, I know that homes built in the 70s and 80s that had yeah. living rooms. Those were typically like the biggest room, one of the, probably the second biggest room in the house. And the least used room in most people's houses yeah. now, or yeah. one of. I mean, you know, but I, I do wonder when we, we start talking about some of these changes, how many of them are because people are asking for the change and how much, how many of them are because builders are recognizing, you know, at the bathtub, it's $385 in material cost and people aren't using the tub the way they used to. I'd rather put the money into a higher level of tile and do a shower that, you know, really has wow factor. And how much of it is being driven by that? Because I do wonder with the average home size shrinking, you know, we were in an agent meeting and I brought up the the percentage of resales within our local area um, that were new construction and they weren't, the percentage of sales were not as high as I expected. And one of the agents said, is that just detached or is that all products? I said, oh, it's just detached single family homes. And they said, yeah, because all the new construction that's going on in much of our county are townhouses. And I guarantee you, people would rather 
they would, if you ask somebody, what's your dream house, they don't say a townhouse community. They're doing it because they need to, because that's the affordable option and it's what's being built and it's what's being made available to them. But I do wonder like how much of what we're seeing in terms of trends are based on builder need and cost versus what people are really wanting. Are people saying they want smaller homes or are they, they buying smaller homes because that's what's affordable? And I think it's self-selecting with you know with the buyers who come to me, but more and more of my buyers are set, are setting a cap on how large of a home they want. I mean, because they they don't want to heat, cool, clean, etc. You know, and, and they also don't want to maintain the exterior of that. And I think that some of my clients are targeting townhomes because they don't want a large yard and they don't want to maintain all of it. I mean, their lives are outside the homes, at least in the you know a certain life stage. You know, if you're if you have you know two kids at home and you're running around to soccer or ballet or you know whatever you know home is great but you're how long how long are you there every day you know so i think it's i think it's i think it's both i remember a very very distinctly a meeting that i had with a with a high-end luxury client um who could afford to buy whatever house he wanted and he sat down with the builder and said i don't want the the minimum that the builder was suggesting was like 3,800 square feet or something quite large in the neighborhood. And he said, I really only want 2,500 square feet. And the builder looked at him and said, I've been in this business long enough to know that when people say they want a smaller home, what they really mean is I want to spend less money. And my client looked at him and said, no, that has absolutely nothing to do with it. It's called, I have a smaller family and I really have no need for just general consumption of space for no reason. I want a 2,500 square foot home. Um, and the builders, but I, I want my neighborhood to have big houses and it, it's a, it's a battle, right? Yeah. I mean, I've had a couple of these conversations and I, so I know that there are people seeking out a smaller footprint. Um, but I'm not always convinced that the trend within communities within the country are always following the, the desire of the buyer. I think some of them may be completely separate financial decisions. Yeah. I think, I think it's intertwined. I mean, I think it's, it's, you know, tail, a little bit of tail wagging the dog, but I think it's also, you know, needs are needs are changing, and and the 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 housing stock will change. It just takes a generation plus to really affect that change and to see it. Well, it was a super interesting conversation with Jessica. She's she is amazing, and she's been a kind of fr- friend of Nest for a few years now. And uh, you know, I, I I love the fact that she not only knows the trends and the stats better than you know almost anybody and she knows him so well but she, she can have the context she knows the context or she can, can extrapolate some context behind him so us as realtors and brokers and even from a homeowner home seller perspective kind of understanding what that means and what that impacts and even the the, the going back to the 470 mile number i mean i've, I've got a couple notes here i'm going to talk to our marketing team this week and say, we got to take this into account. And here's what this means for us of what we need to do to provide, you know, certain things for our agent. So they yep. can set themselves up for success to build those long-term relationships and service their clients the right way. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's super interesting. We'll, we'll get her back. Uh, great opportunity. Hopefully next quarter in uh, you know, early 24 and just talk about where we are now. Every quarter. There you go. All right. Thanks, y'all. Guys, have a good time. Hopefully, we'll be back in an office and we'll be able to bump into each other in hallways. There you go. Someday. This is the end. 
Thank you for listening. If you feel like it, please take 30 seconds to share this, rate, and review us. If you don't feel like it, that's cool too. We still thank you for listening and look forward to the next time.